That uh, little discussion about corporate sin really kind of got me this morning. I, uh, if you're new here, um, I, you need to know, uh, if you're looking for a perfect church, this is not it. <laughs> I got some bad news for you. Um, we, we miss things. We miss little things like the worship pastor dropping my Bible on the stage. All my paper clips fell out. And we miss, we miss big things too. Uh, there are times when uh, we just don't get it right. And, and our, our goal, our heart is uh, to humbly admit our mistakes, our faults, the times when we hurt people, the time when we, when we neglect people that God has called us to love and to do, and to do better. So um, again, we're not perfect. Uh, none of the people that you see on this stage or in the pews are perfect. Um, but we have a heart for God's will and God's way. And uh, that involves confessing our sins sometimes and repenting. So uh, hopefully uh, we can do that together. Um, so we're continuing in our study of Hebrews. Uh, we've kind of been in the last few weeks in this, uh, all over this central portion, uh, chapters five, seven, eight, nine, where we were talking about priests and, and, and last week Melchizedek and today tabernacle and sacrifices in the old covenant. Uh, so we'll wrap up that section today. And we're gonna circle back to chapter six here in a couple weeks um, because some of you have asked, are you skipping chapter six because there's some hard things in there or are we gonna talk about that? Or we're gonna talk about it. Uh, here in a couple weeks, not next week, because next week is, yay, serve day, and you're all going to come, and we're going to serve and eat lunch together. Um, but today, we're going to kind of wrap up this uh, central portion, and uh, just from my perspective, th- this series has been a little bit of a deeper dive than what we normally try to do on a Sunday morning, because we're covering all these Old Testament concepts, too, and wrapping them into the New Testament stuff, and it's tempting to to kind of think of that as like, oh, that's that's super Christian talk. That's like for the people that read their Bibles an hour a day and, and pray an hour a day. And, you know, that's, that's not really for me. That's for the advanced. This is an advanced level. Uh, but that's, that's actually the opposite of what the letter to the Hebrews is about. This, this sermon that was written to these Jewish Christians, remember, who are paying a high cost for following Jesus. This, this is written to the people on the edges, the people who are if you put them to the, to the test and you said, all right, are you all in with Jesus? Are, are you completely surrendered to Christ? They would say, I don't know. I don't know. It's hard. And, and I might be thinking about backing out of this. That's who this is written to. So if you're one of those people where you, you kind of, you're here today and you go, look, you know, there are, there are long periods and seasons in my life. And maybe I'm in one right now where I I don't know how to answer that question. Am I all in with Jesus? I just, I just don't know. This is, this is exactly for you. We, I think there's something here for everybody. I think there's something here for you if you're you know, faithfully you know, following Jesus every day, but especially if, if you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, how central you really want him to be to your life, I think this is absolutely for you today. And I hope it's a word of encouragement and hope and invitation uh, to you today. So let's just jump right in. We're going to talk about um, these uh, Old Testament concepts and hopefully a way that helps us understand what we're doing. I'm fine. I'm good. Uh, Chapter 8, we're going to read verses 1 through 6 to start with. Uh, Again, if there's underlined something on the screen, those those are your words, your lines, uh, out loud, in English, preferably. Here we go. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest. 
and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. All right, let's pause for a second. So that line that you read, the one who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty, that's, that's almost exact copy of a line from chapter one, the first few verses of chapter one, where the writer is kind of introducing us to this idea that Jesus is above all and supreme. So this, this concept that Jesus is currently at the right hand of the throne of majesty is really important to the writer. And we're gonna discover why. He's, he says that Jesus is in the sanctuary. He's, he's, in the, he's in the special place. And he's there for a reason. So uh, keep that in mind. We're gonna uncover why Jesus is in this place Verse three, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. Okay, so he's saying that the tabernacle, the temple where the priests serve and offer the sacrifices is a copy of a true temple that is in a different reality, okay? We think of heaven as uh, this place up in the sky where the streets are gold and uh, angels are floating around with harps and stuff. That's not really the picture that we get in heaven. This is just a different reality. It's the reality where God's rule and reign is absolute. And that reality, that kingdom of God is, is advancing and invading in the kingdom of the world. So that's where Jesus is. But the, the temple and tabernacle were a copy of that place. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. That's a reference to Moses receiving the Ten Commandments and the whole law from God on Mount Sinai. And God was very specific in his instructions about how to build the tabernacle. He didn't just say, hey, go build a tabernacle. Good luck. You know, use your creativity, do your best. He gave very specific, every detail down to the inch was commanded by God because it wasn't just an arbitrary building. It was a copy of a, a place and the reality of the kingdom of God. Okay, verse six. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. Okay, so we're gonna unfold all of that. It's gonna come out as we read uh, through some more passages here in Hebrews eight and nine together. But what we're uh, focusing on right now is this concept of the tabernacle. The tabernacle or the temple is the place where God is present with humans. So uh, it's, it's, it's a literal tent that the Israelites build and they carry around with them when they wander through the desert. And then for many years after they move into the promised land, all the way up until the time of Solomon, when Solomon builds a permanent building called the temple, and that becomes the new tabernacle, the place where God is present with humans. And this is a very special place, and it always has been. So this story begins in Genesis. From the very beginning, there was a place where God was present with humans. What was it? Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden was the place where, where humans could be present with their creator. And there was nothing separating them in the garden. There wasn't like walls that you had to, you know, you couldn't, couldn't go pass through because there was no sin. When sin does enter into the story, what happens to Adam and Eve? they are expelled from the place where God meets with humans, from this earthly, this earthly place, this temple on earth that is Eden. And the way back in is blocked by these spiritual beings called cherubim that have flaming swords that are there to say, hey, unless you're sinless, you cannot pass 
back into this place where God is present with humans. So ever since that moment, when sin entered and Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, God has been in pursuit of addressing sin so that he can be present with his people. Again, we often think of our faith or our religion as us pursuing God. But as Christians, we know God has always been pursuing humans. He's always been passionate about being present with his people. So we see this when God calls Abraham. And God meets with Abraham a couple different times and speaks to him. What does Abraham do when God meets with him? He builds an altar. There is something special about this geographic spot where I was standing when God met with me. So he builds this altar so that every time as he's wandering through the land and he comes across one of these altars, he goes, oh, I remember that was the place where God spoke to me, God met with me, right? And then when we get to Moses, uh, God establishes this tabernacle as a place where God is gonna meet with humans. We had a picture of the tabernacle here, we'll show you. It was a very specifically designed place, remember, because it is a copy of a heavenly place, a place in the reality of the kingdom of God, but this is on earth, and there's some specific things happening here. There's this place called the Holy of Holies. You see that? That is uh, the, the specific location where God is going to show up when he, when he is present with his people, and even more specifically, there's this box called the Ark of the Covenant, Right, and the, the Ten Commandments are in there, and it's a golden box. And the top of the Ark of the Covenant is called the Mercy Seat, and that's the that's the actual pinpoint, you know, geographic location where God is going to show up and meet with people. Did anybody remember what's on top of the Ark of the Covenant? Cherubim, right? These spiritual beings called cherubim with their wings outstretched over the Mercy Seat, just like the ones guarding the way to the. Garden of Eden, they're, they're representing that what's, what's here, what's past this point is the presence of the living God. And you can't go here unless you're holy, right? So God sets all this up so that people can be with him, but who can actually go into the holy of holies? Can you go in? Can I go in? No. Look, can Billy Graham go in? No. If Billy Graham can't go in, who can go in? Nobody except for the high priest once a year can go in. That's it, right? So even with, with all of this God's pursuit of being with his people, it's still very restricted access. And so what the Hebrews writer is pointing us to is Jesus is redefining this concept of God being present with his people, that Jesus is in this place in the, in the eternal reality of the kingdom of God. He's at the right hand of the throne of majesty and he is performing the role of a high priest. He is, he is creating access to God in a new way. And we're gonna see what that new way is as we continue. Let's uh, go to chapter nine, verse 23 to 28. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So sacrifices are about purifying things so that they can uh, be used for heavenly things. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. Okay, so once again, the writer is saying, Jesus entered this heavenly throne room, this space in the kingdom of God for a reason. What is the reason? To appear for us. God's presence. Jesus is there on our behalf. He's not just there because, you know, God is the Father and Jesus just wants to be close to him. That's true too. But he's there for us to appear on our behalf to say, hey, I have access to this place that you don't have access to, so I'm going to go there for you and invite you in. Jesus is there on our behalf. Let's continue. 
Uh, now, did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest, oh, nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Okay, so this is uh, kind of showing us what sacrifices are for. So uh, we have this tabernacle, this place where God meets with people, but you can't go in that place if you have sin. And so there has to be a way to deal with sin so God can be present with his people. And that's what sacrifices are. It's this concession offered to allow people to remain in or re-enter God's presence when they've broken the covenant. We'll get to the covenant in a minute, but there's this, there are these laws about the covenant and how you're supposed to live. And if you don't live those out perfectly, then you have to offer sacrifices. So what, what was the sacrificial process look like? Um, it, was, it was awful. It was, it was actually, if you really think about what was happening, thousands of people are lining up with animals that are going to be slaughtered and burned. That sounds gross, doesn't it? That, that just doesn't sound like a pleasant environment. There's all this blood and there's all this death so that God can be with his people. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. If, if, if people are gonna have any chance to experience the presence of God, something has to die to atone for the sin so that God can be present with his people. And in this system God set up, it was the animals that had to die so that people could be in the presence of God. And God always intended this system to be temporary and inadequate. He knew that the people were just gonna keep breaking the law and keep breaking the law, and it wasn't his plan that they would forever be offering animal sacrifices. And so we see that in Jesus. Let's continue in uh, chapter nine. Let's back up a little bit to verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are uh, now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it's not a part of this creation. And he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but... thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, that those who are called now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So his point is, Jesus offered a sacrifice that is way better than this old system of the blood of bulls and goats and sheep and birds and whatever. Jesus' sacrifice is way better. The old sacrifices purified somebody on the outside. There were a lot of rules about ritual purification for the people of Israel. And you had to offer a sacrifice to be ritually pure so that you could go into just the main temple area just to worship. You couldn't worship unless you had been made pure 
And it was an outward thing. But he's saying Jesus' sacrifice is so much better than that because it, it doesn't just deal with what's on the outside. It actually digs in deep to deal with what's on the inside and starts to address what is it that makes you want to sin? What, what, are the, what are the thoughts? What are the desires that lead you to sin? Jesus's sacrifice digs down deep and starts to change us. What, what is the phrase they use? To cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death. So he's working on the inside to change us into the kind of people who want what God wants. It's pretty amazing. Uh, Jesus' sacrifice is so much better. And now he is the mediator of a new covenant. We read. So uh, let's, let's talk about covenant a little bit. Uh, uh, the covenant um, is an agreement about the terms of the relationship between God and the people that he invites to be his um, to uh, how are they going to live together? How, how are they going to have an interaction? How can a sinful people relate to a holy God? The covenant was set up to demonstrate how this could work, right? So the covenant that God makes with Abraham, for example, there, there are two sides. There's Abraham's side, the things that he has to do, and there's God's side, the things that he has to do in order for this covenant uh, to be whole, right? So Abraham's part is God tells him, you're gonna pack up your family and move to a land that I'm gonna show you. This is an act of faith. This is a great act of trust. I trust that if God tells me to go somewhere, that he will be with me when I obey. And so that's Abraham's job, basically trust and obey, just trust and obey. And God's part is, if you do this, I will bless you and I will make you into a great nation and I will bless that nation. And actually, I'm gonna bless the entire world through that nation. That's God's covenant with Abraham. So then Abraham's descendants are the children of Israel that God rescues from slavery in Egypt and he brings them out into the wilderness and he kind of reinforces this covenant with them and then gives them the law, which becomes kind of like this, this is the manual. Okay, the covenant is trust and obey God. Well, what does that really look like on a daily basis? Well, here's the manual, 613 laws for what it looks like to trust and obey God on a daily basis, to be the people of God, to be different from the rest of the world, but actually to show the world what God is like and what it's like to be the people of God. That's the law. And so if you break the law, you have to offer sacrifice so that uh, you can be in the presence of God still. And God uh, continually uh, challenges the people to embrace this covenant because of all that he's done for them and, and to keep the law. And they continually fail. So here's, here's what's gonna happen. Uh, let's go back to chapter eight, verse seven. For the, if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. So God's fault is not with the covenant. The fault is with the people who can't keep the covenant. The days are coming. Okay, so this next section is a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31. He's just quoting from the prophet Jeremiah. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when? With the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For All right, that's the end of the quotation from Jeremiah. And then the Hebrews writer adds this. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete is outdated 
and will soon disappear. Uh, we're familiar with that concept, right? I get that message from my phone company. If you hang on to your phone long enough, they will send you a message that says your phone is obsolete and it is no longer gonna be useful to you because we're changing the whole way that networks work and your phone is not gonna measure up. That happens if you hold on to your phone long enough. Anybody ever held on to your phone long enough for it to become obsolete? I'm just curious if you'll admit to that or are you like every 12 months, man, I am upgrading. Okay, I don't know, doesn't matter. We understand the concept of obsolete. And so this is what the Hebrews writer is saying to these Jewish Christians. He's saying, here's what, here's what you're tempted to do. Because following Jesus creates so much conflict with your culture and it's so painful for you, you are considering letting go of Jesus and going back to Judaism, which is this old covenant. And he's saying, I got bad news for you. The old covenant is obsolete. It's, it's, it's actually not good anymore because there's a new and better covenant. So why would you let go of Jesus for something that's obsolete? Now, here's, here's our question. We're like, well, I feel pretty safe from that. I'm not tempted to go back to Judaism. Any, anybody tempted to go back to Judaism in the old covenant? No? Unless you were raised Jewish, you don't even know what that means, right? We don't, we don't even understand what that would look like, right? So what are we tempted to revert to when it becomes difficult to follow Jesus? I do think that there is an inadequate version of Christianity that some of us were taught. And when things get hard, when following Jesus in this world becomes so painful that we don't know if we can go on, we're tempted to revert back to a more comfortable and convenient version of our faith that doesn't cost so much. That, that version would go something like this. There's a heaven and it's great, there's a hell and it's terrible. Where would you like to go? Kind of a dumb question, isn't it? Well, I want to go to heaven. What do I have to do to go to heaven? Well, you should pray a prayer or you should get baptized or you should just try to be a decent human. You know, decent humans will probably make it, right? And that's, that's sort of the version of Christianity that many of us want to revert back to when following Jesus becomes too painful. And here's what I think the Hebrews writer would say and what I as your pastor would say, don't go back to that. It, it was never meant to be enough. It was never adequate to begin with. It's not the true full gospel. Don't, don't go back to that. There is so much more for you. And sticking with Jesus, getting a grip on Jesus and, and holding tight, there is a new covenant. And Jesus even talks about this new covenant. Let's look at Luke 22. This is when he's instituting the Lord's Supper. He's, he's taking the bread and the cup, passing it around to the disciples. Here's what he says. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, which is poured out for you. So Jesus is taking, guys, this is pretty amazing what's happening right here. So you know what the Passover is about? This is what's happening. They're at the Passover celebration. The Passover is about them remembering when God rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt by sending the, this, this angel that was going to take the lives of the firstborn, but he would pass over the houses where the blood of the lamb was painted over the doorways. And so they celebrate this Passover when God rescued them from the land of Egypt. And they sit down to this meal to celebrate being brought from slavery into freedom. And Jesus says, hey, we're actually... We're actually renewing. We're going to do a new covenant. 
And, and I wonder if some of them in their minds, their, their Bible study classes came back to them and they remembered this quote from Jeremiah chapter 31 where God says, I am going to establish a new covenant with my people. And they thought, is this, is this what he's talking? Is this it? Is this the time? And yet, that's, that's exactly what's going on. Jesus is saying, all the prophets that said that God was gonna establish a new covenant, today is the day. This, it's happening right now. You guys get to be a part of the first people who are invited into this new covenant. And, and then we are the recipients of that. We're, we're kind of the people on down the line who came from those first disciples who experienced this new covenant proclamation right there at that table. So we're new covenant people. What, is, what does that mean? What is the new covenant and how is it different from the old covenant? So let's break this down a little bit. I just wanna show you a few things that are different. And uh, here's, here's what I want you to remember as we do this. I know that you're not tempted to go back to the old covenant. I know that you're not tempted to let go of Jesus and become like, you know, Jewish in the sense that you, you're gonna follow all the laws and um, offer sacrifices for your sins. And I know that that's not what, where you are. But here's what I want you to see is that what Jesus offers us is better than any other option. The, the next best option was Judaism. And the Hebrews writer is saying, what Jesus has to offer is still so much better than the next best option that you, you've got to hold on to Jesus. So any of our other options, like this elementary version of our faith that's always been inadequate, where it's just about trying to be a decent person so you go to heaven when you die, like this is so much better than that. So that's what I want you to think about as we go through these uh, distinctions between old covenant and new covenant. So old covenant was for Jews only. Uh, you had to be a Jew, you had to be a descendant of Abraham to, to get the benefits of the old covenant, the, the blessing of God that he was gonna give to the people who obeyed. But the new covenant is different. This is John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever believes, I can tell the King James people in here because you said whosoever, right? Whoever believes, so it's open to, it's open to everyone, not just Jews. Uh, the old covenant was um, sort of, uh, established by a law that was written on stone, right? The Ten Commandments and, and then all the laws were written down. They were there in black and white. And it, was, it were these guidelines that you're supposed to live by. And if you broke those, you had to offer sacrifices. The new covenant, what, what God tells Jeremiah, the prophet, I'm gonna write my law on their hearts. Right? So the, the new covenant becomes internal rather than external. This is actually what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Matthew chapter uh, five, six, and seven is about Jesus talking about how the law says, don't murder. I say, don't be angry with your brother, right? Murder is pretty obvious. Being angry with your brother, you can hide that, right? It, it's possible to, to be so angry that you wanna hurt someone and no one but you knows it and God. So Jesus is saying, what, what we're talking about is what's going on in your heart, right? Not just what's on paper, Okay. Uh, next, the old covenant, um, the sacrifices atone for, for wrong behavior. You break the law, you, you pay the price, right? The new covenant says, Jesus already paid the price. What he's interested in is changing you. You remember how we talked about Jesus' sacrifice gives him this window to come into your life and begin to deal with the things in you that caused you to want to sin, to deal with your thoughts and your desires, and to begin to shape those in a way that you begin to want what God wants. Jesus' sacrifice covers all, all the behavior. He paid the price for your sin so that he could come in and change your heart. So it's about transformation 
of people. Um, the, the old covenant, the sacrifices cover sin temporarily. and the new covenant, Jesus offers uh, forgiveness that lasts forever. You don't have to keep offering sacrifices. Jesus is not gonna keep dying on the cross every time you sin. It was once and for all. And for those who confess and repent, forgiveness is available every single day, every moment of every day. In the old covenant, the tabernacle emphasized the difference between God and people. So you saw the tabernacle sort of had these stages. Like if you, were, if you were not a Jew, you could only go into this, you could only get this close. If you're a Jew, you can get this close. If uh, you're a priest, you can get this close. And if you're the high priest, you can get this close. And it really just emphasized the, dis- the distance between God and people. But in the new covenant, that distance goes away. And Jesus steps in to say, hey, I'm, I'm right here in the throne room. I'm right here at the right hand of majesty and you can come right here with me. And it, it, it just disappears the difference. Can you use disappears that way? It disappears the difference, the distance between God and people. Because what becomes the temple in the new covenant? What becomes the place where God meets with people? What's the temple of the new covenant? It's you and me. It's you and me, Right? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, don't you know, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Peter tells us that we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, that we become the place where God and people meet. So if there's someone who's not a Jesus follower, but wants access to God, where should they go? To the church, to us. Not to the building, but to the people. That we get to be the place. So that happens even once we leave here. When you leave here today, you are taking with you the, the place where God wants to meet with people. That's you. You get to give access to other people into the throne room of God. Isn't that amazing? I think it's pretty amazing. You'll get excited about it later when you sit and think about it for a minute. All right, and last... Um, this uh, difference between Old Covenant and New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, there, there were blessings and curses. If you, if you obey God, there's a, a, a blessing. If you disobey, there's a curse. And those blessings and curses were, were pretty much material things. Like if, if God wants to bless you because you've obeyed, then, then you're gonna have good crops that year and um, your, your business is, is gonna go well and you're gonna have protection from your enemies. If you disobey God then the curses are, are pretty, pretty bad. Your, your crops are gonna fail and you're not gonna have food and you're, you're gonna get, there's gonna be a sickness in your land and um, you're not gonna have protection from your enemies. And those were pretty immediate. Like those were happening in real time when, when the people of Israel disobeyed or when they did obey, they were blessed, right? Um, under the new covenant, those blessings and cursings um, are still, there's still like a consequence. Like there's a reward for obedience and for faithfulness and there's a consequence for disobedience, but these become spiritual. And so our, our, our rewards are tied up in Jesus. Our rewards are tied up in this peace and joy and purpose and this anticipation of new creation. So there's this future sense that something better is coming. This new creation where God's rule and reign will be absolute over all everything that exists. That is coming as something that we look forward to. And then there's also the consequence then of turning our back on God and saying no to his invitation, right? And there's that separation that, that's there. So that's the new covenant and old covenant differences. So what does it mean then for us to be new covenant people? How, how, do, we, how, how do we embrace this 
identity as people who live in this new covenant um, where Jesus is in the throne room on our behalf. He's our mediator. His, his sacrifice paid for our sins once and for all. What, what does this mean for us? Well, a few things I just want to mention. It means a lot, uh, by the way. I'm not going to cover all of that, but here's, here's a few things. One we mentioned last week is that we have direct access to God through Jesus. Uh, we, we, have, we have direct access. Jesus is in the, at the right hand of the majesty on our behalf. That means we, we get to connect with God. We get to pray directly to God. We get to receive from God uh, because Jesus is there on our behalf. Um, and we should make the most of that. Uh, the second is the promise of eternal life through faith in Jesus. That um, One of the unique uh, characteristics of the early church that made them really stand out from the people around them was their attitude towards death. They just didn't really fear death. They had a completely different perspective on it because they understood eternal life. And so when the persecution comes from the Roman government and they say, denounce Jesus or die, they were like, die? That's no big deal. Bring it on. Probably not that cavalier about it, but I th- there was this mindset that if the worst you can do to us is kill us, I'll get over that because I have eternal life, right? So why would I let go of Jesus when the worst that you can do is kill me? Isn't that a, isn't that a strange way to look at death? Well, uh, we don't have people trying to kill us for our faith, but I think what we do have is a lot of opportunities in our culture to uh, renounce Jesus, to say, you know what? I, I think the cost is too high. And, and we're, not even, we're not even being threatened with death. But, but what we have in Christ is this promise of eternal life, that, that there really is a limit to how bad things can be. Things can be really awful, but then there's a limit to that. And then what's on the other side is eternal life and life in the kingdom. Uh, third, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. This is, a, this is what God was talking about when he told the people through Jeremiah and he said the same thing through Ezekiel that I'm, I'm gonna put my law on their hearts, right? This is not just a follow your heart, like, you know, free, right? Like just go and follow your heart. That's not what God is saying. He's saying like, there's gonna be this internal uh, form of instruction, like the law is the instruction on how to live in relationship with God and others. This internal instruction is gonna come through the Holy Spirit that followers of Jesus, if you, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've given your life to Christ, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You do. And the Holy Spirit instructs us in the way of Jesus and what it looks like to be his people here um, in this world. So we have that ever-present guide, comforter, advocate, and teacher. And we should learn to listen to him. And then uh, finally, we have this promise of Jesus's return, this promise of Jesus' return. This is something that we get to look forward to. As I mentioned before, he's coming with new creation and, and as bad as things can get. And, and we, don't, we don't ever abdicate our responsibility to engage with the evil in the world and to um, fight against oppression and injustice and fight for those who are marginalized and can't fight for themselves. We never advocate that, but we'll, or abdicate that, but we understand that Jesus is coming to make all things new. And so in fact, our efforts to be the people of God and to engage on behalf of those who are marginalized is, is a way in which the kingdom of God is coming to earth. And so we get to participate in new creation coming and we look forward to a time when he's gonna make all things new. I can't wait. It's gonna be awesome. So here, here's where this leaves us for today. It's painful 
to really follow the way of Jesus in this culture. Your, your choice to be a Jesus-centered person is gonna put you in conflict, sometimes with your friends, sometimes with your community. Your choice to follow the way of Jesus will put you in conflict with people on the left and with people on the right. Your choice to follow the way of Jesus will make it difficult for you to make personal decisions about how you spend your time and your money and how you use your gifts. There's a high cost to following Jesus. And there's a great temptation for those of us who have been here, who, who, who know who he is, who've tasted a little bit of it, to say, you know what, that's too hard. If there's, a, if there's an easier version, I'll, I'll take the easier version. Can I, can I just do Christianity light and, and, and just, just tell me that I'm, I'm not gonna go to hell when I die? That's really the main thing I wanna know. And the Hebrews writer would say, and I as your pastor would say, man, there is no better way. Don't let go of Jesus. Yeah, it's hard but it's also the only path to peace and joy and purpose. There's, there's, there's no other path. There's no other path to the life that God created you for. So yeah, it's tough, but get a grip on Jesus. Hold on tight because there's no better way. Because here's, here's, what, here's what happens. We, we live in a world where um, there's a lot of darkness. Would you agree with that? A lot of darkness in the world. There's a lot of evil. There's a lot of things that we look at if you watch the news or if you just talk to people in your town. There's a lot of bad out there. And what people need is hope. What people need is a light and a reason to believe that there is good and that something is working towards healing and wholeness for people. And God's plan for where they're gonna see that, sitting right here, that when we hold on to Jesus, despite the pain, despite the cost, we become a beacon in the darkness that shows people there's hope and that God is at work and he's making all things new. We get to do that when we hold on. So let's just go to him with a prayer this morning as we close. Would you stand? And we're just gonna ask God to give us the courage to hold on tight to Jesus, to give us the community that will help us do that. I think it's, you can't do it by yourself and you need community to help you do that. And then to use us, to, to, to work through us in a way that draws people who need Christ close to him. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for Jesus, for his sacrifice that, that pays for our sins, for his presence, and the throne room on our behalf. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that instructs us and guides us and advocates and comforts. We have all of these advantages that you've set up to bring peace and joy into a life that can be just really painful and hard. And so our prayer, Father, is that you'd help us just to hold on tight, to see Jesus clearly for who he is and for what he brings and to recognize that there's really no better way. And then I pray, God, that as we hold on tight to Jesus, that other people would see in us a reason for hope and that we can point them to your son. Would you do that in us and through us? In Christ's name we pray, amen. Go in peace, be salt and light in a world that needs Christ. God bless you.